Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains naughty language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 31st, 2022. On this week's show, Jack Hamilton is back to talk about how the Warriors and Celtics made it through the conference finals and what to look for in the NBA finals. Then baseball writer Bradford William Davis will join us for a couple of segments about suspensions. First, the Yankees' Josh Donaldson got a one-game penalty for calling baseball's biggest black star, the White Sox Tim Anderson, Jackie. Then, on Tommy Pham getting forced to sit out three games for slapping Jock Peterson over an extremely intricate fantasy football dispute. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Stefan Fatsis is off this week, but you know who's back? Live mm-hmm. on tape yep. from California. Mm-hmm. Slate staff writer, host of not one but two seasons of Slow Burn, Mr. Joel Anderson. Hey. What's up, man? Glad to be back. You all miss me? I missed you. We, I think Stefan missed you, too. I know Stefan missed you. No, yeah, was... but Stefan missed me. I heard from Stefan while I was off. You know, <laughs> not, 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 not from you and Kevin so much, but that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll live with it, but that's okay. We all, we all express our uh, missing you in, in, in our own ways. But no, it's so, so great to see you again. So great to have you back on the show. Yeah, man. Yeah, I was uh, off. Uh, for people that don't know, I uh, had my first little baby. Uh, well, I guess my wife actually had the baby, and uh, uh, and I'm I'm here to assist. Uh, but yes, uh, I was on the first stint of my parental leave, and it was uh, not exactly vacation, but it was good to be off and get to learn how to do this thing and see how it works. Uh, lucky kid, and we're lucky to have you back too. Thanks, man. Game one of the NBA Finals starts Thursday night. Late Thursday night, if you're on the East Coast, between the Boston Celtics and the host Golden State Warriors. To get there, the Warriors closed out the Dallas Mavericks in five games in the Western Conference Finals. And in the East, the Celtics messed around and lost a late lead, but managed to hold on and beat the Heat in Miami in Game 7. That set up a finals between two of the league's premier franchises, its oldest standard bearer against its latest dynasty. Today, we bring back our good friend Jack Hamilton, who's been writing about the NBA's playoffs for Slate. He is also Slate's pop critic and an associate professor of American studies in media studies at the University of Virginia, and the author of Just Around Midnight, Rock and Roll, and the Racial Imagination. Thanks for joining us today, Jack. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me back. Of course. So in your most recent piece for Slate titled, What the Golden State Warriors Have to Fear, you wrote, the future appears bright in Golden State. But it's nothing like the present, and no amount of foresight can stop the fact that the greatest NBA teams are always unique and finite occurrences. There won't be anything quite like this Warriors team ever again. So, Jack, do you think 
the finals will be a coming out party or a curtain call for these Warriors? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. You know, that's why they play the games, as they say. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I mean, what the Warriors are trying to do is like pretty astonishing if they're able to do it. You know, like this is their first title that they won with this group was now uh, eight seasons ago. Um, And it's basically, yeah, I mean, this is the core of this team is pretty similar to the core of the team that won their first title back in 2015, you know, with Steph Curry, uh, Draymond Green, and Klay Thompson all still there, all still playing at a fairly high level. So yeah, you know, if they win, I think it will establish them as kind of one of the great dynasties that the sport has seen. And you know, unfortunately, I think if they lose, there's probably going to be, you know, the the requisite chatter about, you know, not being able to get it done without Kevin Durant, for instance, you know, who was there for the for the last titles. And, you know, there's always been these sort of weird, um, I don't know, sort of people whispering about Steph's, you know, quote unquote legacy. I think if the Warriors win, it will establish certainly this core and, and specifically Steph Curry is probably, you know, top 10 player of all time, pretty convincingly. And I think if, if they don't win, um, yeah, it's, it'll, it'll be interesting to look back on how this team is remembered, particularly because they're getting older, you know, and it's like there's really no guarantee, as I kind of mentioned in the, in the piece you quoted, like there's no guarantee that they're going to be able to get back there a whole bunch more times. I mean, maybe they will be, but we don't know. The thing that's um, fascinating about this Warriors team, and we can bring in the Celtics too, is that, uh, you know, neither of these teams are one of the greatest teams of all time or one of the greatest teams of the last 10 years. Um, And we've talked about it during these playoffs a bunch, Jack, about how this feels kind of like a bookend to the super team era that the Heat started and those transcendent heat teams, the Warriors team with Kevin Durant, I, I think we would all probably imagine that the, those teams would would be either of the teams that are in these finals. And yet both the Warriors and the Celtics of, of 2022 are kind of a testament to something more enduring and something that feels more kind of solid and independent of era. And that you know, both gets at um, the the fact that you have this core of the Warriors that's been there for eight years. There's something like very kind of solid. There's a foundation there that has led to championships. And then with the Celtics, Jack, you have this team where for years now, there's been kind of hammering away at this idea of, you know, should we keep Tatum and Brown together? Um, are the Celtics like screwing up this amazing haul of draft picks that they had by not adding a superstar player? And so, you know, both teams in their own ways just feel like a kind of answer to the question of how to build a team and how to build it to last. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, the Celtics, this is certainly, I mean, the Celtics are a young team, but this does still feel, have the feeling of them kind of getting over a hump that they had, you know, this team has been to the conference finals a number of times with Tatum and and Brown and haven't, uh, this is the first time they've been able to break through to the finals. But yeah, I think you're right that we are seeing at least a lull in the quote unquote super team era. I mean, we certainly have super teams still, you know, in the Clippers, for instance, or uh, the Nets, uh, 
uh, you know, you could say the Lakers probably too, but you know, they all they all were various shades of uh, disappointment <laughs> this year. But yeah, the the Celtics definitely, you know, are mostly a homegrown team. Um, in terms of having drafted most of their core players and really developed them. And so are the Warriors. You know, this is certainly something Draymond, Clay, and Steph have been, you know, they've only played for that that one team their whole careers. And certainly both teams have have made some very good additions. You know, I mean, Al Horford has been really invaluable for the Celtics in his second stint with the team. And sam- similarly, um, the Warriors adding Andrew Wiggins, who's been, you know, a really tremendous contributor. We talked about him last week as someone who, um, you know, they acquired via a trade, a, a trade that was second-guessed by some people at the time and, and, and has just turned out to look completely brilliant. Um, so, yeah, there's certainly, there, you know, these are teams that have had some changes, but there's, there's also a lot of stability with them. To build on that point, like, I've always sort of talked about if you have a really good team, to just lean into it, right? That you, There's no need to tear apart a team that has a superstar so and maybe some pieces around them, and maybe they fall short one year. And I think kind of the Celtics and the Warriors are good examples of that because there was a lot of, especially out here in the Bay, like after the last couple of years, they're like, oh, well, maybe Steph should move on and they should try to rebuild the team. And uh, with the Celtics, you know, they ran up against, you know, so many other great teams for so long, and maybe they should start over and trade their core or whatever. And I'm always like, that's dumb because you just never know what's going to happen. You don't know who's going to get hurt in what year, what opportunity is going to emerge, you know, what what players are going to start clicking and finally the light comes on. Um, don't you think that kind of, this final sort of is a good example of that? Because nobody would think that these Warriors or Celtics teams are the best versions of the teams that they've ever been, but they caught some breaks and here they are. But it, And it's not even um, that they kept themselves to that together. It's like a step further than that. And you kind of alluded to it, Jack. It's like they kind of reconstituted themselves even further by like getting Al Horford again and getting Daniel Tice again. And so like really leaning in hard to not just staying together, but like becoming even more themselves than they ever were before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's happened with the Celtics is really is pretty remarkable. You know, this was a team that was very disappointing in the first part of the season, as I say that as a as a Bostonian. Um, and yeah, that was certainly something that, you know, the, the turnaround that they've made, but it has been, yeah, as Joel was mentioning, like, it's a testament to, I think, kind of staying the course and patience. And, you know, it's been really amazing to see the development of some of the younger players, you know, Robert Williams and Grant Williams, um, who are guys that they drafted, you know, in sort of the late first round. And the I think Celtics fans and the organization always, you know, believed in their heart that these guys could become really, really good players. And it's actually happened, you know, and they haven't, they didn't give up on them. They didn't, they didn't give up on Jason Tatum and uh, Jalen Brown being able to play together, which was certainly, you know, earlier this season, there was a lot of consternation about, you know, whether those guys can play together and things like that. Um, And certainly Marcus Smart, who's, you know, the longest, I think, I think he's the longest tenured Celtic and someone who they drafted um, back in 2014, and who's just been with the team the whole time and has been this really, you know, kind of steadying influence. And it's just, there is something really validating, I think, about seeing these guys 
break through. But, you know, the, the Warriors, it's absolutely right. You know, the Warriors, as, as Joel was saying, there was, you know, this idea of like, oh, are they too old? Do they need to rebuild? And the, the organization had pursued this pretty interesting strategy of trying to inject younger players into, you know, around the core three. Um, so you have, you know, a rookie like Jonathan Kuminga, who's really, really exciting. Um, and it's pretty rare that you have a team that, you know, is this good um, that also has like an exciting lottery pick who's a rookie. So yeah, they're both very interesting and impressive kind of experiments in team building and also just team maintenance. And and it's not like the Warriors were perfect in getting this right um, because they picked James Wiseman when they could have had LaMelo Ball. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like like imagine how how different that team looks even if they have LaMelo Ball instead of Wiseman who's not even playing for them right now, right? Yeah, I mean, Wiseman could still end up being um, a guy that carries them forward, you know, three to five years. What do you mean, now, like by, by, like, by getting you know, get, you know getting some picks for him or something? Or what do you mean, like? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> it actually doesn't. Like Lamelo Ball is an amazing, amazing player. It seems hard to imagine that the Warriors would be much better with him than they are with Jordan Poole. Um, it's just like he. He would be like probably a better fit on the Celtics <laughs> than he would yep. be on on the Warriors. But yeah, I mean, you're you're obviously right that Wiseman has been has done nothing for them, and yet um, they they are where they are. Um, before we kind of linger too much on uh, on the future, I want to mm. go back to the Celtics nearly mm. blowing Game Seven against the Heat, <laughs> and just like the absolute like confluence of of narrative and we've talked we've talked about this before too just like the degree to which players are perhaps even more conscious and self-conscious about narrative than even like fans and pundits are i think of jason tatum wearing the kobe bryant number 24 armband during the game so i like jason tatum i followed his career since he was in high school but i mean that's just come on I mean, yeah. I like him a little bit less after he, <laughs> after he did that. Like, obviously, Kobe Bryant meant so much to this generation of, of players, and everyone has taken his death extremely hard. And so it's 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 not. It, it feels a little bit churlish, you know, even with all of the uh, compl- shall we say complexity of Kobe Bryant's legacy to um, really hit him too hard for that. But it's just like I I, I will never forget. Kobe Bryant shooting six for 24 <laughs> to lead the Lakers to a win over the Celtics in game seven of the NBA finals. And I, I believe that was against the Celtics. Was I it not? not that right. yeah. <laughs> it, it's so, but Jack, isn't it so funny how like players legacies and teams legacies get sort of like re- remixed and refashioned in such a short amount of time? Because I would guess that in 2010, we were probably having a very different conversation about Kobe Bryant and the Lakers and the Celtics. And to imagine that the Celtics' best player would, in 2022, be wearing an armband of 
the Lakers' best player, Kobe Bryant, as some sort of signifier of like Game 7 greatness and clutchness and would then lead his team to victory over a player who played way better than anyone on the Celtics in Game 7 and yet missed the three-pointer at the end, Jimmy Butler, and then did not win the new Larry Bird Eastern Conference MVP (laughs) award despite clearly being the best player in the series. It's just like... A, a very interesting set of like data points on like how we remember and talk about players and games instantly and then kind of in the very recent past. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I'm old enough to remember, <laughs> you know, Kobe's own like really, really cloying obsession with Michael Jordan, mm. you know, and like that just I remember at the time just feeling like that was like so corny how obsessed he was with Jordan and sort of paying all these tributes to him. So it's now kind of weird seeing this new, and you're totally right. This generation of players is completely obsessed with, with Kobe Bryant. You know, it's not just Tatum, it's Devin Booker and a a lot of other guys as well kind of worship him. Um, Is it like sort of a a rock and roll thing of just like when guys die at a particular (laughs) age in a particular moment, Mm. then they I don't think so, because I, I feel like he had a hold over his contemporaries and the, the generation that came right mm-hmm. after him in a way that even LeBron doesn't, right? That there's a lot of mythology yeah, that's true. around totally. him that's that true. just, that just, that nobody else seemingly can touch, um, or has been able to touch since then, right? Yeah, totally. And and part of it was very cultivated by Kobe. I mean, to his credit, like he did spend a lot of time with young players, you know, and took on this role of being sort of a mentor figure to a bunch of these guys. Um, but yeah, he does have a, a, a very specific uh, position kind of in the firmament of, of, of you know, old star players. Um, and I think certainly his, you know, tragic death uh, contributed to that. But I, I, I 100% agree with Joel that it was it was very much there prior to his death. I mean, I think the death has put it into a, a sort of different register. But yeah, he was certainly someone who was a touchstone for a lot of these younger players for, for a very long time prior to that. Jack, as a guy who, you know, longtime Celtics fan, whatever, right? Did you think the Jimmy Butler shot was going to go in when he took it? <laughs> Man, I was I I was just in such a state watching that fourth quarter. I ended up rewatching it again the next morning uh, just because I was like I I was like emotionally so <laughs> on overdrive. Yeah, I mean I I think my heart was you know in my throat when he took that shot. Um, it's the kind of game that like. Uh, not to sound like Bill Simmons or something, but like if you're a Boston sports fan, like that kind of game, you're like, oh my God, we're just going to lose. Like this is like, it feels oh, that the, way. No, no, Wait, to- what? no Haven't the Celtics won like, the yeah, haven't the Celtics won a million a million uh, championships and and wait Boston sports fans haven't they been successful in other sports recently <laughs> yeah, screw well, you yeah, I mean like, what yeah. a stupid what a stupid thing to say my earliest dare sports you. memory is the 1986 World Series so that's oh, God. Like, you know you Come got on. that <laughs> get over it get over it no but yeah so I mean I was definitely um, I mean especially with Butler who'd been so good in that series like when he put that shot up yeah I mean I think I was sort of surprised that it, that it didn't go in and I was surprised that the Celtics you know, despite their best efforts seemingly to <laughs> lose that game, you know, snatch victory from the jaws of defeat or whatever it is. <laughs> I mean, thank God that shot didn't go in, honestly. I'm like, I will confess, despite being oh. uh, not a fan of the whole Boston, oh, <laughs> let's say um, that I do like, the, I do like 
Tatum and Brown. I like the Celtics team. And also, it's just going to be so much better of a series. Yeah. Like, watching the Heat, like, try to make a shot against the Warriors. I mean, these playoffs have been a disappointment since the first round. And, you know, the Celtics certainly have it in them to play badly. We've seen that repeatedly throughout these playoffs. and they, But they also have it in them to make other teams look bad, too. Um, and, and so it, it's something that um, I think anticipation should be high. Hopefully, unlike other series, it will live up to the anticipation. Um, but, you know, the the Warriors seem like kind of the, the betting mm-hmm. favorite. The analytical favorite is the Celtics. Um, you know, it's it, it will be interesting to see what happens and hopefully will be interesting stylistically too. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, I think there's a consensus ar- around most uh, basketball fans who've been watching these playoffs, I would say that, you know, especially when you factor in injuries and things like that, that I think these are the two the two best teams, that this is definitely a finals where it doesn't feel like either of these teams was sort of a fluke uh, finals entrant. I think, I think it'll be a really good series. And I think they're, you know, a stat you're going to hear a lot, you're going to get so sick of it, <laughs> is that the Celtics are the only team uh, with a winning record against the Warriors since Steve Kerr became coach. Uh, so they are, they, they're, they're, they're pretty well matched. Um, and I think it'll be, yeah, it could potentially be a really, a really excellent series, um, particularly on the heels of what I think most people feel like were pretty lackluster conference final series. You know, the, the Warriors made pretty easy hay of the Mavs and the Celtics series, even though it went to seven games, like was pretty brutal to watch a lot of the time. Like they're really, you know, as we talked about last week, there really just weren't uh, very many really good games in that series. I mean, game seven was probably the best game um, of that series that we got. Not to be annoying narrative guy, but uh, it's probably come up a few times, but I'm sure people are going to not make anything of the fact that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving left their respective teams to build something special. <laughs> and now uh, those teams are in the finals and they uh, got swept in the first round. But anyway, Jack, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us again. And good luck to your Celtics. Uh, and I say that as a Bay Area <laughs> resident. Uh, I hope I hope they pull it off. <laughs> thanks, guys. This was great. Uh, thanks again for having me on. Up next, we'll have insiders Bradford William Davis on to talk about the White Sox's Tim Anderson and his dispute with the Yankees' Josh Donaldson. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Three years ago, Sports Illustrated's Stephanie Epstein published a piece headlined, Tim Anderson is going to play the game his way. That story begins, Tim Anderson's baseball life is often a lonely one, even when he's on first base, usually the most social stop on the diamond. 
My conversation is limited over there, he says. It's like, what's up, dude? What's up, man? How you doing today? Because we don't have nothing in common. The piece goes on to note that Anderson was then one of only 72 black players in Major League Baseball, and that he felt out of place in the sport, like he belongs on the field, but not in the game. And then a bit later in the story, after a mention of the work that Anderson does to help introduce inner city Chicago kids to baseball, he said, I kind of feel like today's Jackie Robinson. That's huge to say, but it's cool, man, because he changed the game. And I feel like I'm getting to a point where I need to change the game. All right, fast forward to a little more than a week ago, another player, the Yankees' Josh Donaldson, threw that quote back in Anderson's face, calling him Jackie on the field. That comment led to Donaldson getting suspended for a game and the Yankees player, for some reason, apologizing to Jackie Robinson's widow. Joining us now is Bradford William Davis. He is an investigative reporter for Insider, and he wrote about Tim Anderson and Josh Donaldson for Defector last week. Uh, Welcome back to the show. Yo, thank you for having me again. Great to have you. And uh, I'm grateful to have you here to walk us through what happened here in a bit more detail. Um, And maybe explain what sort of interactions Donaldson and Anderson had had before this. And I guess there's a little bit of a difference of opinion between them on what the kind of nature of their relationship was. Yeah, difference of opinion isn't even half of it. (laughs) Uh, Tim Anderson almost directly refutes what Josh Donaldson said their relationship was. But uh, to, to start with Donaldson's side of the story, apparently in 2019, after that Sports Illustrated profile, uh, Josh took deliberate, took it upon himself to begin calling uh, Tim Anderson Jackie. Tim Anderson did not appreciate that in the moment, but Josh Donaldson said that, they, that he laughed about it. And so he continued to do that during the 2022 season, which is right now. And Tim jawed back after hearing it a couple of times in the field during a uh, a heated Yankees White Sox game. Benches cleared, and you know they had their words. Uh, no one, no punches thrown, but they were definitely uh, almost there. But as Tim calls it, he never appreciated that. He always felt that that was out of pocket for him to be calling him uh, his calling him Jackie because. Uh, they're not friends like that, I guess. Uh, he said that, uh, something that something defective. If you speak to me like that, we don't have to talk anymore. That's what Tim Anderson said. And, uh, and so from Tim's, from Tim's side, which is a side I happen to believe is, is the true side here. Josh had continued to needle him, continued to, to provoke him. And they had already had a, uh, they, they'd already had the, both teams had already had a scuffle in uh, the week prior during a game um, that they played. So he was, so there was already bad blood simmering when that happened and it exploded into what we saw the, the last week and a half. You know, brother, in the days since then, um, obviously there's been a lot of, you know, reaction um, around the league, even at Yankee stadium, the, you know, the day after this kind of blew up. Um, who do you think, I mean, because you're talking about there's a difference of opinion, it, it, it goes beyond that. Like, there's just a totally, you know, they don't, they don't even come from the, from the same point. Who do you think story has resonated the most within baseball, right? Like, I'm not asking you about outside of that, but within baseball, who do you think people believe or side with the most um, in this case here? It's a great question. It feels a little like a civil war. I can't say, like, one side is definitely over the other because, I mean— I only have my circle people and I try not to hang out with people who invoke, uh, 
disease and goaded civil rights icons to <laughs> mock me. So like, I, I just don't have a good sample size. But I will say that the, that a lot of the players that I've spoken to felt that Josh Allison uh, is a known instigator and has kind of a rep. And so there was a decent amount of frustration that he that he went there. However, many fans, if we're including like the baseball community, include fans were quite, you know, and particularly Yankees fans of that were very sympathetic towards uh, Josh Donaldson because they felt that he was just busting balls and that Tim brought it upon himself to get mocked by, I guess, you know, again, slain, I mean, not slain, but uh, deceased civil rights icon police uh, in respect of Josh Donaldson for uh, drawing a comparison between himself and his heroes. So that is, so they're really, so there, I think there really are two minds to that. And then somewhere in the middle are people who maybe don't approve of what Josh Donaldson said, felt it was maybe unwise, but felt that he didn't mean anything by it. And that it was ultimately just him being a troll, but not doing something with a clear uh, racial animus underlying the trolling. Basically, we don't know the, the, char- the contents of his heart. Right. Real quick uh, to follow up here. So there's those three sides of this, right, of looking at it. And I'm just curious to know if you all are surprised that, you know, look, Tony La Russa is Tim Anderson's manager, of course, right? So, I mean, in some ways he has to ride for him, but that he rode for him so hard. I mean, Tony La Russa is a guy who, I mean, was openly supported the Tea Party, you know, brought, you know, Albert Pujols to a Glenn Beck rally you know what i mean like this is not the guy that you would think would be lining up with tim anderson and so to me that sort of says a little something doesn't it even like even if you just even if even if you just accept okay look a manager kind of has to side with his players but for him to come out so vocally and defend tim uh in this instance says a little something doesn't it yeah i think that that part is a little overplayed to be perfectly honest Okay. Because one, it is his manager. And so he had his back. And so that's not totally uncommon for mm-hmm. a manager to have his back, despite the perhaps different politics or values that Anderson and LaRussa may have. The other thing is that Tony LaRussa has allegedly been a strong supporter of, believe it or not, Bruce Maxwell, who, uh, some may, may remember as a, uh, a a former catcher with the Oakland A's at a couple cups of coffee, kind of very marginal player, not Tim Anderson, totally different spectrum as far as uh, their skill and performance anyway in the field, but is someone who uh, kneeled during the anthem in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick back in 2017. So right, so right after Kaepernick, because it was essentially exiled out of, out of football. Um, and, uh, and according to Bruce, like, and he's very vocal about this, Tony LaRusso supported me. And which is again is interesting given that Tony Russo was was critical of San Francisco Giants manager Game Kapler for uh, choosing to have it to stage a similar protest during uh, the anthem this year. But I think Tony is the kind of person, uh, the kind of person who believes that everyone should be allowed to do what they want, even if I disagree with your methods and approach. Kind of like you know, I'll, I'll die for your right to do something <laughs> that pisses me off. You know, that that kind of conservative uh, sort of. Uh, approaching things. Uh, they're, they're, the, the, the GOP that we need in this country, <laughs> as some might say. So that's, that's kind of what I think, think Tony is coming from here. You know, I, I, you know, uh, whether you want to call him a, uh, hashtag ally, 
uh, in the fight, uh, is, you know, I think, a another subject I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to debate here, but I do think that he, um, does believe in the right for people to express themselves. I mean, Tony LaRusso is, though, like a big play the game the right way guy. And I do seem to recall that he's like criticized guys on his own team for quote unquote not playing the game the right way. But this is like intersects like so many different kind of baseball third rails um, because, you know, Bradford, Tim Anderson has been a guy who the league has celebrated in ad campaigns for um, being somebody who brings excitement to the game, who celebrates, who, you know, tosses, flips his bat and, and, and stuff. But there is, like we've been saying, the strong undercurrent and not always an undercurrent of people in and around the game who don't support um, behavior like that prominently to most prominently Tony La Russa. Um, and sort of, you know, I think it's important for people that don't follow the sport to know this context. Tim Anderson is an amazing, amazing player. Like one of the best players in the game was hitting in the 350s, right, before he got hurt recently um, and is just a superstar in the game. And so um, sort of like somebody like Bryce Harper, right, like somebody who both is a great player but also is like, you know, likes to celebrate his own greatness as as so many of us like to do. So how much of this is about kind of Tim Anderson and the way that he's received um, in the game versus, um, you know, how this would play out with any other player? I think that with Tim, he is, yes, he's definitely very celebrated, but baseball does have this culture that he is rubbing against, which is the whole angle of that Sports Illustrated profile from three years ago. And he's a lightning rod because of that, because he is so uh, aggressively being himself. And he is a bombastic, boisterous person who loves to have fun and, ce- and celebrate his wins uh, whenever they come. And, uh, and so it's, there's an importance to getting this right, I think, um, I'm not sure exactly how the league sees this, but, you know, but I think certainly many fans would see this as, you know, certainly, you know, some of the players that I've spoken to as well. Like there is a importance in getting right that you don't have too many Tim Andersons. Frankly, you have more Bryce Harpers than you have Tim Andersons, even though Bryce Harper is uh, a more celebratory than the generation before him. Uh, because, you know, because he's, he's so talented and so charismatic, uh, and, and a proudly black American. Uh, man in this game. So it calls into, into, I guess, into question the, the suspension being so short, in my opinion, given that people have instigated a lot less and gotten more, more games in the past. Um, I want to say like Amir Garrett got like a few games for just kind of looking at it kind of the wrong way <laughs> that, that caused a ruckus. And granted, Amir Garrett is a repeat offender. Right. Uh, Amir Gary being a, a, a relief pitcher in the Cincinnati, I want to say the Cincinnati Reds now, or no, the Royals, excuse me. But, um, but so is Josh Allenson. Josh Allenson has been at this for a decade. He's, he's been, he's, he's always that guy. Uh, it is a, it's part of what makes him great in some ways because he, because he also plays with supreme confidence and celebrates his wins. But he, um, but you know, but it is, uh, but it is a big reason why a lot of people don't like him, like Tim Anderson. <laughs> you know, I, I do think the baseball of it all, 
this person really into him being so different from the culture that was handed to him is a big reason why this is drawing the attention that it has. So stepping back for a second, what do you all think resonates the most here? Is it Tim Anderson and his um, celebration of himself in the game, right? That like Tim Anderson is a guy who's one of the best players in the league, um, makes no bones about it and celebrates himself at every opportunity, which is great. Like that's awesome. And that that's drawn him some attention to himself. Or is it that he's refers to himself as basically being alone out there. And, you know, the fact that Josh Donaldson's or whatever out there to antagonize him. Um, and he seems sort of lonely in this, this journey, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I guess I was trying to figure like, as this happened, like, if you're a young black baseball player, like, let's say you're 11 years old and you're trying to make a decision about what sport do I really want to play? I'm just like, what, which of these two things do you think would resonate the most? Is it, Tim Anderson's greatness or the way that it is regarded and the way that it's treated, um, you know, over the past few years. I certainly hope it's Tim because he, I think, responded in a perfect way. And then the next day he hit a massive three run home run to secure a doubleheader sweep against the Yankees in Yankee Stadium. And that entire day fans were chanting Jackie at him. So they made the subtext into text <laughs> by making it into a slur as, <laughs> as, uh, as he played, but he hit a three run home run. He, uh, I believe he, he yelled out like, shut the F up <laughs> and, uh, might have put like his hand to his ears, you know, and, uh, and then just, uh, did his, did his trot as, as he secured a big win for his team. I think that his ability to overcome is hopefully a symbolic sign for a lot of young, young kids, but that is, but the symbol is one thing. The actual day to day reality of being an a, an eleven year old on a travel team, Yo. uh, out of your neighborhood where where you're no longer with other, you know, with your 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 family, with but you know, if you live in a black neighborhood, your 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 community, and stuck with a bunch of Tyler's and Trevor's and Josh's. Bro, that who, shit doesn't uh, that shit doesn't look fun at all, right? Like that yeah. that sounds like nobody wants to be. You want to be Tim Anderson, but you don't want to live Tim Anderson's life if you're a professional athlete, right? Right. It's like, so how long do you want to hold on to that? How, you want yeah. to spend the next 12, 12 years and many of it perhaps in the minor leagues making, you know, uh, below poverty rate wages all to, to have people, you know, turn again, civil rights icons into slurs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just because you want to improve the game. And I think that's a really important point that, that, that is, I think, lost in all this is that Tim Anderson is actually a pretty fabulous, um, carrier Jackie Robinson's legacy. Like he, <laughs> Uh, he, he is, in, uh, very involved in his, you know, in the communities that he's a part of. He's a great baseball player. And, um, and he's making it fun in a way that, that gives people a lot, I think, a lot more comfort to be themselves. And we've seen that. We've seen way more bad flips in the, uh, post Tim Anderson's breakout era. It's not only Tim Anderson doing that, but I think he's a big part of that. So he is changing the culture slowly within the sport. You know, it, it doesn't mean he is breaking the color barrier. I think having like a modicum of charity, when interpreting his words, would say that he, yeah, that he is not placing himself as an equivalent <laughs> to Jackie Robinson, but just that he's, he's trying to to honor his legacy by making it a little bit easier for for a generation behind him to feel welcome and supported in this game. That's it. Yeah, and so in the Sports Illustrated piece, he um, made an argument that black kids should go into baseball, like despite everything that had been going on with him. He said, you know, 
football's dangerous. Bas- this is actually Stephanie Epstein's words. Football's dangerous. Uh, basketball's for physical freaks, but an otherwise unremarkable child can dedicate himself to baseball and give himself a shot at college. Like that's that's the argument. And there are a lot of really great young black players in the majors and also, um, you know, in, in high school and college right right now. It's not like um, there's a, a total uh, dearth. And I think a lot of that can be credited to Anderson and players like him. Um, but the thing that I find um, really kind of amazing about him is the guy who says that that Jackie Robinson quote is somebody who is not ashamed or hiding. He's proud. He's a smart guy and kind of understands, I think, how people are going to read that and think about it and and interpret it. And he's willing to own it. He was willing to own it in 2019 and understands kind of his importance in the game. Um, and I mean, there was also an incident in Bradford that happened just before that Sports Illustrated piece came out where he flipped his bat, a white pitcher threw at him and could have seriously hurt him. And Anderson shouted the N-word at the, at the pitcher and got suspended for a game, the same amount that Josh Donaldson got suspended for. And then when Stephanie Epstein asked him about what he said, he said, yeah, I said exactly what I said. And he wasn't running away from it. He wasn't shying away from it. This is not, again, a guy who's like afraid uh, to say what he thinks, um, to own what he said. And he's not, I, I think he probably wishes he wasn't controversial, but it doesn't seem like he's going to, you know, mince his words or anything like that. Yeah, he's, uh, he certainly se- seems to be very comfortable in his skin. I, I unfortunately have never had a chance to have a, a to actually have a conversation with him for more longer than like eight seconds. Uh, but I do hope to, because I would love to, to hear a little bit of, of why he has been able to, I guess, mentally repair himself uh, for the things that he, that he deals with without flinching in any sort of discernible way. Not to say that there is, there aren't probably time things that he, he may not say that he would say if he stuck, stuck with uh, basketball instead of baseball, as he, I think, wanted to for a long time in high school. But he's a, a, a got a very special mindset and that's great. But back to what Joel was saying, you shouldn't have to have a super special Brazilian mindset. <laughs> To deal with things, you should be, it should be, you should be okay with being like, you know, with your feelings hurt. <laughs> and, uh, you know, with, with you should, you know, what I mean to say is you shouldn't, you shouldn't need to have such tough skin to make it as far as you do in, in organized American baseball. And that's a problem. Hopefully Tim Anderson can make things better again for a generation coming after him. But that is, but the, but the key issue is that. You need to be so unique and so special, uh, not just with your bat speed or your range is short or, or your arm or something like that, but also in your head. That's, that is what I certainly hope changes through, uh, Anderson continuing to be himself, but probably like 20 other structural things that we don't have the time to deal with as well. All right, Bradford, you're going to s- stick around and we're going to talk about another, uh, dispute in baseball that led to its suspension. A more lighthearted topic. We'll get to that in a minute. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and how the sports world has responded, including 
Steve Kerr's comments at a press conference and Gabe Kapler's decision to stop coming out for the national anthem. If you want to hear that discussion, you need to be a Slate Plus member. And if you're a member, you don't just get bonus segments on this show and other Slate shows. You can listen to this podcast and other Slate podcasts without any ads, and you can get the pleasure of knowing you are supporting this show, which would not be possible without the support of Slate Plus members. So sign up. Go to slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So here is a set of events that actually happened. Before Friday's game between Cincinnati and San Francisco, the Reds' Tommy Pham approached the Giants' Jock Peterson in the outfield and slapped him across the face, an act that led to Pham getting suspended for three games, for comparing suspension lengths here. Pham explained the next day that Peterson had, quote, said some shit I don't condone. Meanwhile, in the other locker room, Peterson was telling his side of the story. Let's listen. I put somebody, a player, on the injured reserve when they were listed as out and um, added another player. Uh, And then um, uh, there was a text message in the group saying that I was cheating uh, because I was stashing players on my bench. So let's stop that. Um, This goes on for a lot longer, but this exchange confirms a fact that I'd already suspected, but now know with absolute certainty that even the most interesting fantasy sports argument in history is just incredibly boring in its substance. But it does get better because Pham, who was on the San Diego Padres last year, he wasn't just upset that Peterson was doing something or other with his fantasy football roster. He was also mad about what was going on in the group chat. And thankfully, Jack Peterson walked us through that part, too. It is true. I did send a, uh, a GIF making fun of the Padres. And uh, if I hurt anyone's feelings, I apologize for that. <laughs> Joel, uh, there is some more backstory here that we can get into in a minute. But I just wanted to get to you as quickly as possible. Because I feel like you're maybe more equipped than anyone on Earth to analyze what happened here. Is that is that you think I'm some sort of slapping expert, or is it because is it because is it because Jock's from Palo Alto, or because I've seen group chats devolve into violence before? Or what, what is you that? love? You love analyzing dumb fights. Yes, and this is true. Uh, you like to you know say say things and uh, you know maybe maybe tease people a little bit. Maybe a little like, Yeah, okay. Maybe yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I'm a 
a little teaser. That's, that's fair. I'll take that. I'll take that. Well, I mean, so I think the thing that was funny to me is that if you didn't know the players or their names and just laid out the facts of the case anonymously, right? You'd think it was like this dust up between a pair of 20 somethings who were out of the, out of triple A ball. Uh, like it's just, you know, the gifts, the, the fantasy football, the group chat, all of it, just some real Gen, Gen Z shit. And then I just realized that the people involved here were like 34 and 30 years old. Yeah, <laughs> these, are, these, are, these are grown-ass men, you know? <laughs> yeah. and it, but it makes sense in the context of baseball. And Bradford, I'm sorry if this, you know, I know you cover baseball and you said you're not a baseball player, but it makes sense in the context of baseball to me because they're the players tend to be more juvenile than other professional athletes on the average. Is that fair? Is that a fair characterization of baseball players? That they're more juvenile than like your typical NFL or NBA player, right? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like helmet syndrome does something to football players. Like, <laughs> okay. of just kind of like needing to be seen <laughs> in a way that is, that might be a little different. But, sure. uh, but you know, but again, I'm not the I'm not the football player. I'm not the the twelve year old track star. I I, I don't know. No, I just no, no, no. Fine, 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 um, fine, fine. I I think the thing that's the funniest thing about all this is just that t- Tommy Pham is no longer on the team that was being made fun of, and he right. still held it in for so long. There's <laughs> no the way he gives he a no- shit about the Padres, right? Like, I'm, no way, right? <laughs> <laughs> but there's evidence. It's five fingers of evidence. <laughs> <laughs> Five fingerprints <laughs> that would attest to something that as uh, to the fact that he does care deeply about how others perceive the 2021 Padres. I didn't know that there had been anyone in in the entire history of humanity that had cared about the Padres being insulted. So we, <laughs> we, we, we learned something. Josh, you may be right. <laughs> Maybe entirely right. Hey, man, I grew up with two kids in my neighborhood, uh, Joey and Audrey. And if you all happen to be listening to this, strangely <laughs> enough, from the 80s, they moved into my neighborhood. They were the only two Padres fans I ever knew. That, and they lived in Missouri City, Texas in the late 80s. So uh, they did care. Maybe they would uh, have some feelings on that. But I, just real quick, uh, let me not pretend that I have a problem with slapping someone over perceived disrespect. Generally, that's something that I, I absolutely understand. And I even respect uh, in certain contexts, but I mean, bro, I mean, Tommy seems like a hothead. Like to me, it's just like you were looking for a reason to slap that dude, right? Like I just like that's that's bottom line. Like I just think that you didn't like that guy. You probably like been watching that group chat, you know, go down. You just like I just don't fuck with that dude, and you were looking for any opportunity to slap that guy, and when it arose, you took it. That's what I think. I think some important context to Tommy Pham is that he plays with like eight chips on his shoulders. <laughs> that is, that is why he's had a, a good long career, really. There was actually a Sports Illustrated article about that from like 2017 when he had a breakout year with the San Luis Cardinals. But in the previous two seasons, he was a good player, yet he was like constantly being shuttled between the major and minor leagues. And he's like really mad. Like, I'm clearly one of, you know, the better players on this team. And I was before even my breakout season. Why am I still in the minors? He is driven by that sort of, uh, anger and desire for, for, um, vengeance <laughs> against all, against all enemies real or perceived. And, uh, you know, again, I, I hate that I'm essentially describing an angry black man trope, but. This is this is one of those times where you know you should not systemically broadly you know, uh, put all 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 black males no. into this, but the shoe fits. He's no. angry and he, and he and he uses it to be good. And so I think that is kind of what ha- what happens that when you when you have that when that that's what drives you is what makes you a millionaire, makes you a, a star baseball player. Uh, it's hard to turn it off 
<laughs> it don't matter anymore. <laughs> and I think that's exactly what happened when he had the, uh, when he had to do the, uh, when the fantasy football beef, uh, sparked is that, you know, he's, he, he it, it was, it's the equivalent of the guy at the bar, you know, waiting for someone to look at him, to glance at his eyes in the wrong way and be like, Oh, you talking to me? You talking to my girl? You know, all right. Well, let's, let's step outside. He, he wants that fight because it's what makes him a good player. Don't we feel like, I- Oh, everything that, that you guys said is uh, is true. But don't we feel like this is just like about money? That he's just mad, and he even he even says it explicitly. You're fucking with my money. <laughs> oh wait, there's actually more. You're fucking with my money. Then you're gonna say some disrespectful shit. There's a code to this. I did not realize <laughs> that there was a code with Padres gifts. Um, but I I think what happened here is let's let's throw some money let's let's throw some dollar figures out here, Joel. Like, how much money do you think would have had to be involved for Jack Peterson to get slapped like that? Are we talking about, like, Tommy Pham feels like he cost him? Oh. I mean, these guys make a lot of money, actually, because they're professional athletes. You think it's, like, five figures? Six yeah, figures? I, I, I was starting here. I was saying $10,000 is probably where you start. 10000 was the number that was in my head, too. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Did you have an imaginary dollar figure in your head, Bradford? Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if it's like even six. I mean, like these guys have a lot of money. Yo, they have so much money, man. Like, and Tommy fans do like he like you know he actually was uh, stabbed in front of a strip club. Fortunately, you know recovered well. But like you know, um, not Wait, too what? long ago. Really? Yeah, yeah, it happened. Oh, I, I don't think I knew that. Which city? Yep. Which city did he get stabbed? I just need to know. <laughs> we'll do some research on that. We'll do some while research we're on talking, that. Yeah, okay, we'll right. Oh, it was in San Diego. It was yeah, in, San Diego. San Diego. Yeah, Wait, oh. in San Diego. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, cool. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, he, you know, he's, he's, he's made, he's made his money, you know, like he's, um, you know, he's a multimillionaire, um, and as is Jock, I, I would have to think it has, it has to cross six figures because for money to be the true issue here, uh, and not like respect, I think respect is sort of it, you know, I, I think even, even when it comes to the IL stuff, like the, or, or the, you know, the fantasy roster issues is like, this is a disrespectful way to conduct your fantasy football team. And I have a problem with it. And then on top of that, <laughs> you made fun of the team that I no longer play for, <laughs> but was a part of. Uh, how dare you? And so I, I really think it's, yeah, it, it's spite. Um, and honestly, I, I do respect that. And like, cause frankly, I, I, I write best when I'm angry. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, when I'm mad, like, I wish, I wish I could concentrate better on, on words when, I, uh, when I'm in like a good state of mind, but I'm not. So. Here are a couple of things that Tommy Pham has said in the past few years and about this incident. He said, I'm a big dog in Vegas. I'm a high roller at many casinos, which is like, I thought that that was like something that Ron Burgundy said in Anchorman. No, uh, but, but you know what? He is, from, he is from Vegas. He's, he's from he's Vegas. Vegas. I was like, so that, that actually is, I, I thought that was bullshit, but I was like, oh, that actually could be true. That's probably true, right? <laughs> All right. And here's after the, the strip club. Uh, stabbing incident. Um, <laughs> there were hecklers, and uh, Fam said in response to that, to fans heckling him about him get, self getting stabbed, he said, When someone comes up to me cursing at me like that, I could defend myself. And you know, I'm a very good fighter. I don't do Muay Thai, <laughs> Kung Fu, and box for no reason. I love this guy. <laughs> and that's all I'm saying. It's like, it's not about money because the man's probably blowing. 10 times his fantasy football earnings <laughs> at the strip club. Off oh, wait, oh, wait. There's another, there's another quote. There's like, another quote. So, so earlier this, like a month ago, there was an <laughs> oh. issue with a slide at home plate that Tommy Pham didn't, didn't appreciate. And he, uh, he offered to fight 
a former teammate of his, Luke Voigt, and said, if Luke wants to settle it, I get down really well. Anything, <laughs> Muay Thai, whatever. I've got a gym owner here who will let me use his facility, so fuck him. Wow. I mean, Joel, this is like your favorite player wow. ever. Wow. It's a podcast. You can't see who Luke Voigt is. Friends, Google Luke Voigt. That man <laughs> is strong. Yeah. That man, like, ser- no, like when he was in the Yankees, like I would ask him for like workout tips, <laughs> like, and he'd tell me about like eating asparagus because oh, like a bodybuilder friend of his knows like it, it produces you know muscle growth better than many vegetables. Like he is like there there are videos of him lifting uh, a bench with plates on uh, a, a barbell with uh, plates on both sides with just one hand. Like that's that's a kind of like wow. meathead you know, driven to the grind of gains that Luke Voigt is. He's a big guy. And so for Tommy Pham to do that, that like that, that says an, a lot, a lot about Tommy Pham that he yeah. wants to like fight again, not only his presumable friend, even, you know, from, from a previous team, but also like, you know, the biggest guy, one of the biggest guys on the field anytime. Do you know who Tommy Pham is? I'm just, this is just kind of occurring to me and see if this analogy is he's Pac-Man Jones. Is this not Pac-Man Jones? Tommy Pham is Pac-Man Jones. Uh, that like we know that he can fight. He's I mean had you know strip. He's open to fighting at a strip club. Fi- open to fighting pretty much anywhere. And it's like you don't want to be associated with that dude. Like you do not want to have to go out with that person. You don't want to have any real sort of interaction with them because you're just what you you know you don't know what wire you're going to trip. But at a distance. He seems like a fun motherfucker, man. Like he just seems, <laughs> like I just I like that vibe. Like I feel like all professional sports need players like this. As long as you know, as long as they keep it in between the lines. And and did you you all did see the slap right um, itself? Oh, we there's like a blurry photo, right? Of it, yeah, like, blurry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that in and of itself, and I know that slapping is like, you know, some great crime in America, uh, up until, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, up until a couple, couple months ago. But I just, I kind of dig that dude's vibe. I think all professional sports need a guy like this, you know, it, 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 assuming they can survive their off field fights. Um, but, um, and, and then baseball would much rather talk about this than Josh Donaldson. They'd much rather talk about this than, you know, the Anaheim, uh, scandal that's going on where, you know, corruption and everything was used to to set aside land for the Angels, right? So, like, I mean, if I'm baseball, like, three games, whatever, that's fine. I mean, you, he deserved the suspension or whatever, but, like, that's, that's the kind of story you want to have out there, I think. Well, this story is just such an amazing boon to the Joel Anderson agenda, which is <laughs> that, that agenda being... As a society, we should not pretend to care about things like this or to like yes. take them like super seriously. And like just this story um, with the the fantasy football and the group chat leading to a, a slap. I, I think all of America is behind you on this one, Joel. <laughs> that we we shouldn't uh, try to argue that this is problematic. Um, but I should all, I will add, and and this is getting back to something that Bradford said. Earlier, I mean, with Tommy Pham, like this is a guy. He like had to wear leg braces when he was an infant. He overcame like an eye issue to play in the uh, the majors. Um, he has, you know, his his when he grew up, his dad was in prison. Like he has a a really amazing story, and the fact that he was able to make it to the majors is really cool. But this is like a guy with all of the stuff around him. Like this might be funny. 
it does feel like there could be like something that happens with him in the future that's like less funny. Um, and I feel kind of like, I don't know if I, if I feel bad for the guy is the right term, but like, you know, there's a, there's a, I guess a fine line between like playing with a chip on your shoulder and like, uh, you know, the, the humor of being mad at somebody about some dumb fantasy shit and like having some like self-control, self-control issues. And I'm just like worried about what's going to, what's going to happen with this guy in the future. No, no, I mean, I think that's fair, right? Yeah, I mean, you don't want it to spill. Like, if you can't control your anger, you can't control your anger. Uh, and that can lead you down some really dark places eventually, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hope that uh, he's able to just better drive it towards competitive fire. Uh, and and only competitive fire. Like, I don't want to proclaim that he's going to be, like, in jail when he's 50 or something like that at all. Like, like you know, there's plenty of time to work, to, to, <laughs> to work out. Uh, your, your hangups in a way that, that you drive it towards the things that matter and, uh, step away from things that don't. It's hard, but like, it's possible. And, uh, I, I'm, but I, yeah, right now I'm grateful that it is a purely funny story at this point. Like, think about Slapgate one, you know, and, uh, the many referendums that were made about (laughs) black on black crime or something of that, to, to that nature. Like, I'm glad this is not that. I'm glad that this is, you know, as harmless and PG as violence can be, like, right. in, you know, the country. So, and, and, and let's not overlook Jock Peterson here, by the way. He seems like an extremely cool guy. Like, he took, I don't know what he knows about Tommy, or maybe he knows all the same things we know about Tommy, which is why he took that slap, you know, fairly graciously. Like, he was like, I guess I earned that. Um, but like, he just seems like a really cool guy. I'm so happy that he was willing to open up his phone. And group chat to the rest of us. Um, that was so generous of him. Yeah, I mean that's the <laughs> that's the last point I would make is that like Bradford is somebody who goes into locker rooms. Like, I mean, isn't this the best case and demonstration of why it's so important? Like in this era where like they're trying to restrict journalistic access to players and locker rooms, and it's like everything on Zoom. Just like it just brought so much joy to me to see like this gaggle of reporters around Jack Peterson and he's like showing his phone and like answering everyone's question. I mean, America needed this. And like, (laughs) this is just, you know, Bradford, you should be in, be able to go in any locker room uh, that you, that you want and need to go to because America, America needs these moments with Adam Silver is listening. (laughs) (laughs) Look at this. Look look at what you miss. You're, you, you are, you're in the uh, conference final, well, now the finals, and your sport is the sort of cultural touch point in this country. And you lost the entire weekend to a fantasy football scrap in Major League Baseball <laughs> because media had access <laughs> to the player. Let us in. Let us in, Adam. And this is the, another a testament, Joel, to the popularity of football. The, like, when does baseball make it in the news because of fantasy oh, right, football? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you know what? I've never played fantasy football in my life, but if it gets people, well, actually, you know what? This this makes even more of a case for why I've never done it because I don't want to get that emotional about anything. You know what I mean? That's like, I had enough going on in life without it escalating to something like that. Um, but yeah, no, football, still keen to born. Oh, speaking of football, by the way, you know, I did not know much about Jock Peterson, and I had to, so I had to look this up. Uh, he's a local product, right out here, Pally, a Pally Viking. Did 
this factoid on his Wikipedia fucking blew my mind. Did, did, you know what I'm going to read to you all? Peterson, oh, I do. I do. Peterson was the team's number one wide receiver, racking up more yards and touchdowns than his teammate, future NFL wide receiver Devontae Adams. I was like, what? Jock Peterson, what? <laughs> Dog, I like that guy too, man. So shout out Jock Peterson, who I, who was right. You love both you, know? you love both of these guys. This fight really raised both of them uh in, in esteem in your eyes. Oh my god, yeah. I mean they're they're firmly in my top five favorite baseball players already. So uh thanks for this. Ninth, ninth in career home runs among Jews, baby. Let's go. Really? Um, <laughs> we all got something to root for here. Great. Uh Bradford, William Davis writes for Insider. He investigates stuff for Insider. We talked about his great piece about uh the baseball uh not that long ago. And he wrote about uh the other incident that we talked about, the Tim Anderson, Josh Donaldson one for Defector. Bradford, thank you so much for spending time with us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And now it is time for After Balls. And Joel, I don't know if you knew, but while you were gone, we got a sponsor, Bennett's Prune Juice. Really? Endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. Bennett's Prune Juice. Um, Prune Juice is good. (laughs) I mean, my dad raised me on Prune Juice. That's fine. I'm sorry. Oh, man. Uh, Hang up and listen to After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice. Endorsed by Joel <laughs> Anderson, who says, my dad raised me on Prune Juice. Um, so, Joel, uh, just because I find fantasy sports disputes desperately boring, even when they lead to slapping, uh, <laughs> we didn't mention the player, who is the kind of the eye of the storm. So the issue was that Jock Peterson put a guy on his injured list, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But the player was Jeff Wilson. Yeah. Kind of a Jeff Wilson. generic ass name, Jeff Wilson. Uh, but he is a running back. So again, another reason why the story is just like right um, in, the, in the center of the Venn diagram of your interests. And not only that, he played college football at North Texas. Really? I did not know that. I'm, I, for some reason, I thought this guy was from Florida, but okay. Huh. Oh, wait, here we go. High school football at Elkhart High School in Texas. Ooh, okay. I want to say Elkhart's in East Texas, but I may have that wrong. You all looking up here. Elkhart, Texas, southwestern Anderson County. Have you heard of it? 
Oh, yeah, that's in East Texas. Also, he was born in Palestine, Texas. You know who else is a great running back was born in Palestine, Texas, right? Ooh, I should know that. Adrian Peterson. That's right, Adrian Mm -hmm. Peterson. I knew it was Mm -hmm. sound familiar. Um, So, Joel, since I'm doing the after ball today, Mm. is there anything you'd like to ask me? Anything I'd like to ask you? What? Yeah, you know how we do this? Remember how we do this? Oh, yeah, right. Oh, my bad. I'm sorry. I've been off for so long. Uh, oh, we're leaving okay. all this in, but go ahead. Yeah, okay, yeah. Oh, oh, God. I won't even get to do a retake. Okay, so, Josh, who is your Jeff Wilson for today? Uh, so, Joel, there's a phrase that's been a part of our lives, I, I think, ever since both of us have been uh, sentient sports watchers. So, basically, like, since mid early to mid-'80s, uh, oh. it's a phrase that evokes the natural cycles of of fandom and team building, of highs and lows, of success and failure, of reaping and sowing, if we want to get biblical about it. And that phrase is rebuilding year. Mm. Since I happened uh, to mention 1980s, I'm going to pick 1985 here just as an example. Let's start off with a survey of teams that, according to LexisNexis, were going through rebuilding years in 1985. You got the Villanova basketball team coming off a national championship earlier that Mm. year. The Clemson football team coming off probation under coach Danny Ford. The entire uh, sport of American figure skating, which had slim hopes for medals at the world championships. All sorts Mm. of high school teams that were suffering losses from graduation. And also the company WaveTech which did tests and measurement instrumentation and was having, quote, unanticipated difficulties in growth. So it's clear from that list that the concept was and is far-reaching. It's not specific to any sport or to team sports or even to sports at all. Trying to figure out the origins of the term rebuilding year, it's a little difficult given the prevalence of non-metaphorical usages of the term, like people rebuilding their houses a year after a fire. Mm. But I did learn from newspapers.com that in 1915, the Cornell football team was rebuilding next year. Nine years later, a headline said the Yale football coach must do plenty of rebuilding this year. Mm. And while I'm guessing there were earlier references that I missed, the first quote, rebuilding year I could find with no words in between the rebuilding and the year was in Pittsburgh Press in 1928, noting that a victory uh, in the Duquesne football team's final game would make the team's record read pretty well for the rebuilding year. We've talked a lot about Duquesne football on this podcast, by the way. Do <laughs> They're you definitely punching above their the weight. Dukes, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The rebuilding year will clearly be with us forever, conceptually. The Chicago Cubs, they're using their rebuilding year to see if Nico Horner is a long-term answer at shortstop, says The Athletic. New York State's Galway High School won the Section 2 Class C Baseball Championship in what their coach said was thought to be kind of a rebuilding year. So way to go, Golden Eagles. (laughs) And yet, Joel, why all of this wind up and build up, you might be asking. I feel Mm. like the concept of the rebuilding year is all but dead. In two of the sports that the two of us hold particularly dear, those sports being college football and Mm. college basketball. In those sports and others, players are now allowed to transfer once without having to set out a season. That's the new NCAA rule. The rise of what's effectively college sports free agency has changed those games in all kinds of ways. But for our purposes, let's consider the Iowa State basketball program. In 2021, the Cyclones finished 2-22, and and 0-18 in Big 12 play. That would be uh, a team that you'd think would need maybe a rebuilding decade, not just a rebuilding (laughs) year. But coach TJ Otzelberger rebuilt the team through the transfer portal, brought in seven transfers, 
Um, and that new core beat LSU in the NCAA tournament, and they went uh, all the way to the Sweet 16. And how about that LSU basketball program? They fired Will Wade for allegedly breaking all kinds of NCAA rules. Um, and after that happened, every single player on the 2021-2022 uh, roster put his name in the transfer portal. Wow. New coach Matt McMahon did convince three of them ultimately to stay. He brought in another group of players from his old team, Murray State, and he got some transfers, some incoming freshmen, um, and has actually cobbled together what looks like is going to be a competitive roster in the SEC. Now, it's obviously easier to turn over a relatively smaller basketball roster than a football one, but also look at what USC's Lincoln Riley and LSU's mm. Brian Kelly have done in the last few months, bringing in tons of new transfers in very short time frames. And so that's what brings me to my conclusion, Joel, that at least on the high major programs, losing players to graduation, losing them to the draft, it's no longer going to be an acceptable excuse for a down year or, heaven forbid, a losing record, um, which is perhaps one of the many reasons why a lot of coaches don't like the transfer portal. Those natural cycles of highs and lows, of success and failure, of reaping and sowing, really of excuses, even reasonable excuses, those excuses no longer exist. And so that other cliche, we don't rebuild, we reload, that has now become an imperative. And that's why I'm expecting a playoff berth from TCU every year oh, from okay. now, until, now until the end of time. But do you, do you agree with my take that rebuilding year, there's no such thing anymore? I think it won't be a thing if you want to get rid of your coach. Right. You know what I mean? Like if it's right. just like, ah, you know, you know, there's no excuse. There's no excuse, uh, Brian Kelly. Uh, you know, I, I know you lost a lot of players, but you know, you're able to rebuild your team. It's not a big deal. So yeah, I, I, I agree in theory, but it'll always, the coach that wants to buy himself more time will say that there's a rebuilding year. And for fans that are dissatisfied with their coaches, like, what are you talking about? There's no such thing as a rebuilding year. Um, and to your point about TCU, I mean, I've just got, so little faith Rebuilding in you? that. Uh, yeah, I mean, just whatever, man. We got. To, I mean, I don't. I don't. You know, I don't want to get uh, agitated talking about them. But uh, I, you know, rebuilding. Uh, this is a rebuilding administration. Put it that way. I'll, but I mean, I'll, like, think about Baylor basketball, for instance. Like, you, mm. Scott Drew came in after that program yeah. just got absolutely destroyed for good reason, and it's just like a slow building process. And then after many, many years, they won a national title. Like. This T.J. Altsoberger thing, it's not like, I, I mean, Iowa State had some good years under Fred Hoiberg. And actually, we should mention Myron Medcalf, friend of the show, wrote a yeah. good piece about how Fred Hoiberg was like, that was the first actual transfer program that they like built themselves on transfers kind of starting a, a decade ago. But like uh, the, the fact that he turned that team from two and 22 to the Sweet 16 in one year, like if 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 we're talking about like even a program as like decimated as Baylor was, like now conceivably they could have won the national title the next season. Yeah. No, sure. I, the thing is though, I just think that all of that is going to be a little overblown because good players don't tend to leave like that. You know what I mean? Like I just don't. I I, I think you will be able to rebuild. You'll be able to pick a player from Murray State and get somebody from Kent State and bring in somebody from Colorado State. I'm just naming a bunch of states, but. Um, but at the end of the day, like I mean, I I think it'll be a lot of much ado about nothing at the end of the day because the good schools are still going to be the good schools and they're going to have good players already. And maybe you'll be like Alabama where they'll pull Tennessee's best linebacker Henry Toto. Or I think I think that's his name. Uh, you know, they're just able to manage to get Tennessee's best player. Just to add on, just a little sprinkling. I agree with your theory 
in theory. That's all I can ask for, Joel. Thank you. Mm. Uh, that is our show, show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to sleep.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at sleep.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson, who we're just thrilled to have back, mm, I mm, mm. am Josh Levine, remember Zelmo Baby, and thanks for listening. <laughs>